Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Welcome to the alternative to vitamin B12, because research has shown these sessions produce phenomenal increases in brain size. I mean, not a well, it's in the 10% and upwards. Now, our three morning thinkers cover the whole range of endeavour. All human life is there, as the news of the world used to say, before it got technological. Um, we've got a wonk, a geek, and an autocutie, but such distinctive, <laughs> such distinctive sector-confounding members of those tribes, you'll love them, and they'll each speak for five minutes about what's on their minds this morning, and then it'll be your turn to say stuff, and if you don't speak up, I'll pick on you, and you'll think, no hope, I won't know who anybody is, and of course I don't, because I haven't had enough vitamin B12 still lingering from the GQ men of the year, which shrinks brain size, and absolutely does. But you, there's no refuge in that, because Julia will guide my pointing finger, so she knows who everybody is all the time. So there. And our gorgeous three are, first, the radiant Kate Garraway, who came into my life and into the life of a a little group we might call the Little Friends of Derek Draper um, uh, um, some years back. And Derek had returned from his studies of Psycho Bongo in Malibu. And amazingly, and you thought, God, there's hope for us all. Amazingly, <laughs> coupled up with this marvellous woman here. I was going to do a dry spell. It, <laughs> it was just extraordinary. I can remember the stag night and everything. Um, Kate Garraway is the bright good morning lady from GMTV, and she's the one who gives us the stars, the really starry top stars, the sort of Johnny Depp's, Nicole Kidman's, and Julia Roberts's. And she's done all the things you have to do to do that. You may BBC, ITN, trainee, News 24 launch person, plus, of course, Strictly Come Dancing, where... I think it's fair to say she wasn't technically the, absolutely the best dancers, but God, did we love her for it. <laughs> and um, then, there's no particular order of the gents. James Crabtree is our wonk. He's comment editor of the FT. Ten years, it's the classic pattern, politics, journalism, either side of the Atlantic, policy advisor, IPPR, Fulbright scholar, Barack Obama helper in New Hampshire, written for The Economist, New Statesman, Guardian, etc. You get the picture. Um, uh, and then David Rowan is a geek, sort of. He's editor of Wired UK, great launch of 2009, writes about technology for GQ, Guardian website, journo everywhere, lots of digital propaganda tours. He goes on digital propaganda tours. You know that. It's all the rage. But rather fascinatingly, um, his last job before this was as editor of the Jewish Chronicle. 
life is rich and strange and wonderful, isn't it? And we're going to start with Kate. Okay. Who has five minutes. I have five minutes. Yeah, I apologise for the notes. It's not just as my husband and Peter has now said that I can only do things without autocue. It's also because normally I talk for two and a half hours and Julia said it has to be maximum five minutes. This might help me stick to some kind of time limitation. Julia, thanks for inviting me. It's a big honour to be able to talk to this. And it's also very, very rare that I get to do something so late in the day. So thank you for the best line I've had in about 10 years, actually. I've known Julia for a while. But my husband's known him for a lot, known her for a lot longer. I think it was Poland Street. We've just opened offices in Poland Street. I think that's where you first met Derek, wasn't it? Years ago, Miss of Time, back in the Labour Party, Miss of Time. Well, we are, I'm going to talk about my new offices and my new business a bit later on. Uh, or have I misjudged the fact you're allowed to plug things at an EI event? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to talk. My thought is going to be about social media, and it, it kind of. It's a good week for me to speak about this because uh, Peter mentioned GMTV. GMTV died last Friday, went out in a huge wake, uh, which I'm only just recovering from the hangover on. Everyone was there, Anthea Turner, tequila slamming, quite a sight to behold. Um, and we all kind of came up for air round about 10 to 6 on Monday with the launch of Daybreak. So Daybreak, day four, extraordinarily still there. <laughs> I still seem to be employed, uh, but it's also a week when I finally realise that I am an internet entrepreneur, which is extraordinary. I have a new business, uh, a new website, which I'll tell you about in detail in a bit, but um, I'm somebody that really can't even turn a computer on, or certainly couldn't in January, so it's amazing that everything's come together. Um, We've seen the end of iconic show that I think was the butt of a lot of jokes, but meant a lot to a lot of people, but had its time. Uh, a new show, Daybreak, that's come on air, and I have a role of entertainment editor in that show. Uh, very glamorous, as Peter says. I get to hang out with the likes of Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie, but also I suddenly realised means getting up at three, uh, filming during the day and going to sort of big screenings and things in the evening. So I was beginning to think I, I might die. And then uh, I got a, a little note from the website manager saying, could you please file your daily blog? And I thought, they're literally trying to kill me. It's true what the Daily Mail said. They don't want anyone from GMTV to survive. How can I possibly do that? But I realised, of course, that, and I think people in TV have been, you might agree, David, I'm sure, um, presented very late to catch up with the fact that actually communication through the internet uh, can no longer be an extra to what we do on television. Um, I've been looking for something commercial to do for a while since the beginning of the year, thinking about things I might do which would have sort of value for me and value for the people that watch me on television. And I met a, a vaguely sinister looking Russian at a party. He's actually quite nice, but I still prefer the idea that he's vaguely sinister because it fits with a kind of Bond idea. And together we sort of brainstormed since spring and come up with an idea uh, called goodypass.com, um, which basically takes celebrities who aren't particularly aware of the internet, some are a little bit more, but are having a presence online. I hate the word celebrities, but you know what I mean. Uh, and allows them to, to talk with their fans, even worse word fans, uh, and also give them something back in the form of discounts and uh, goods and services. So the idea of the two things really came together as my thought for the day, really. 
it is that um, the sliding, or if you think of it more progressively, the embracing of mainstream television of the online world, uh, me having my own business. And, and I have to say, having been very doubtful about the idea of social media, I've looked at it again, and it is actually quite good fun. I, I, when I had to first start doing Twittering and Facebook, I'm sure you guys are all into it thoroughly now, but when I first started, it felt like a real chore. But um, I then began to realise that actually <laughs> it's really good fun. We were at, uh, having a, you know, a great time uh, down in Whitstable and uh, we sat down at the table of my friend who has these ludicrous sort of bling everything and we texted and twittered what the picture looked like and before long all these viewers started to send back great co jokes and comedy about the ludicrous table we're sitting at and you know we didn't completely give up on talking to everybody at the table for a good half hour we were having a fun time chatting sort of on a level not as sort of weird stalkers or as obsessive fans but on a level with people that you wouldn't otherwise get the chance to do i think and I feel that for presenters nowadays, uh, not being active on social media is, is, is kind of akin to not replying to letters that used to come through the post. It's not even not opening them, actually. It's like chucking them in the bin. So, you know, your fans, your customers, your voters, if you're a politician, uh, your customers, or, or if you're just a brand, uh, if you opt out of the conversation online, I think you, you do so totally at your peril. So having spent my fantastic half hour having fun in Whitstable, uh, we then went to Blackpool Tower recently um, with uh, my in-laws live up in the area and we're off to have a bit of a celebration and we, I tweeted that I was on my way. Within seconds I got the best place to have fish and chips, uh, the best place to have a one pound pint of beer and by the time we'd actually arrived there um, someone was saying I'm going there too to the circus and when I actually got in there a family came up and said I've seen your tweet, I tweeted back we're there. So there's absolutely no doubt that being involved in social media is an incredibly direct way to find out um, the way people are thinking, uh, to engage with them properly in the way that I think presenters like me thought it was all a bit weird and, and distant. You're not just broadcasting, you're narrowcasting one-to-one. And I think it's a, a, a very direct, zero-cost and easy way of joining in with, with all those that you need to speak to, whether it be your customers or your voters. So I think that's why people like myself in TV, however successful shows like Daybreak are, and you know, seems to be doing quite well. We've had a heck of a first week. I think the team at the website were right to encourage me to blog and Twitter, um, even though it felt like it might kill me at the time, and that in the old days, you would have always put the broadcast on television first. It's also why hopefully my new online and, and media business uh, goodypass.com. I do have a bag here, by the way. I'm not sure if this is the right time for a plug. There you go. Um, <laughs> hopefully it will be a success. But also I think why all of you should get plugged into things like Twitter and Facebook. As I say, if I think any public figure, and that doesn't just mean on television or a politician, I think anybody with a company, um, to ignore social media in this day and age is the same as not opening your post. Um, chucking it in the bin and there are people out there already talking about you, already wanting a conversation with you and you are effectively being as rude as that to ignore them and doing so at your peril. So do it. That's what I thought for the day. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Well, I realise that there's one constituency we have underrepresented here and that is fogey life. Because there would be a fogey life response to this sentiment. We'll come... 
um, come to that later, people who think that's the wrong thing to think and do. American Indians thought photography stole your soul. It has been clinically proven that Facebook does you huge damage in later life. There we are. Now, Julia, who's up next? James. James. Very good. Um, so I thought I'd talk about religion. Um, we're about to enter with the Pope about to arrive on, and I say this advisedly next to the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, with the Pope about to arrive on these shores, we're um, uh, about to have a week of commentary about the sort of the dialogue of the death between the media, religion, and politics. Um, and this gave me a thought to talk about one of my, one of my life's great obsessions, which is Mormonism. Um, an odd obsession to have, uh, but it was also the last thing I wrote about for the, um, for the FT, uh, the last thing I wrote about at any great length. Um, I mean, it strikes me that if you look at something like David Cameron's notion of the big society, it's odd that in here you have no religious content at all. Um, that when the Pope arrives on these shores, you will have an awful lot of brickbats thrown between, I think that David Arinovich was a rare um, exception this morning in the Times, between liberal commentators who don't much like religion and re religious leaders who seek to defend themselves. I became interested in Mormonism as a sort of counterexample when I lived in the States, and I never heard of this religion before. Um, I had a few friends who were Mormon. I think I just about knew most of the cliches about the church, um, that it had a background in, of polygamy, the HBO program Big Love, um, that it used to uh, occasionally reinter, uh, sort of dig up dead uh, people and rebaptize them. Uh, that it had a reputation for extreme conservatism. Um, Mitt Romney, the presidential candidate in 2008, was a prominent member of the church. Uh, it bankrolled the Proposition 8 campaign in California in, t in um, 2009. Um, I just became rather fascinated by another thing that I learned about it, namely that in the United States and increasingly in this country, there are vast numbers of profession hugely professionally successful Mormons um, in top-tier investment banks, um, in white-shoe law firms, in the Central Intelligence Agency, in the upper echelons of government. Quietly, this was a religion which had become enormously successful in American public life without anybody really noticing it, that against this backdrop of a weird, <coughs> kooky set of people who didn't drink alcohol, who didn't drink coffee, who were unusually polite and were sometimes to be found outside train stations and European tourist destinations harassing you to join their church, there was sort of something magical in the way in which Mormons were brought up um, in which they learned to become leaders in public life and in the way they became successful in the upper echelons of American life. And I would sort of set out to find out what it was and spent almost a year digging around on this topic and found all sorts of fascinating things. I mean, I should say I'm not particularly religious. I'm not a member of the church, and I was interested in this sort of sociologically. And so I, I won't go into too much of the detail, but I, you know, I dug around into the way that all Mormons are forced to go on a mission uh, for two years, or all male Mormons when they're young, something which is incredibly hard but turns out to be transformative. The church itself is very wealthy, and it spends a lot of that money on welfare, um, supporting people when they become unemployed. It has a strong culture of self-help, so if you move cities, 
um, instead of turning up and having to find a new friendship network or get settled in a new job, you'll find members of the church who come and unpack your van, move you into your house. Um, it, they, they have a phenomenally interesting mix of professional and religious networking so that um, the church groups tend to uh, cross over with industry groups as well. Um, equally, the church tends to pick its leaders um, from those who are professionally successful. So there's no clergy, no priests, um, uh, no vicars, just people like yourselves in ordinary corporate jobs who are kind of hoiked out for a while to take leadership positions in the church. And I suppose what I found was there was this peculiarly interesting mix of ecclesiastical and, um, and sort of corporate leadership, in which people who did well in the church did well in business and vice versa. Uh, what I also found was that nobody had ever really looked at this um, because people were drawn to the, 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 the slightly more um, intriguing stories of polygamy and weirdness. And that made me again reflect on something like Cameron's Big Society because what you get out of Mormonism is what David Cameron is talking about in an odd sense. I mean, you have strong values of family and self-help. You have civic institutions which are doing what the state does for you, at the moment does for you, supporting you in various ways, providing you with welfare. Um, and I suppose the sort of the, the thought to take away from this is that next week when the Pope is in town, or in general um, when we're trying to talk about um, things like the big society, there is more to learn from um, obscure religious institutions than we might think. And I'll just leave it at that, I think. Well, did you realize that the Mormons were the big conspiracy? I must say, I didn't, because we're also diverted by, of course, the Osmonds. You know, the most, I mean, are they real Mormons? I don't know. Are the Osmonds real Mormons? Yep. They're yep. still real Mormons. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? And only last week, Jenny Murray, at her most contralto, sympathetic tones, was talking to somebody who'd been married off at about 10 to you know, arrange marriage in Utah to somebody for whom she was going to make 10 babies and so on. And we didn't realize that it's really you know, what Mormons are about. A white shoe, I love that expression, white shoe law firms, the CIA. God, that's really spooky. Now, Mr. Rowan. Good morning. Good morning. So, the tagline for Wired magazine is um, the future as it happens. And my job is to try and read the runes of where we're going. Everything from new, new business models that are coming along to disrupt industries, the book industry and TV are about to go through some big upheavals. Um, how design is changing consumer products, how data when you visualize it helps us plan our journeys into work more effectively, how scientific studies are going to have a real-world impact. Um, and obviously, a, a lot of change is coming through R&D and technology. We're not a technology magazine, but that's where transformation is happening quickly. And I bet you everybody here, the last time you used the word technology was probably when something went wrong. You know, Damn this projector, the technology isn't working or I'd like to get online, but I'm having technological problems. Technology works when the idea of technology disappears, when it's you 
talking to your kids on a video link, when it's you listening to the music that your friends are recommending in real time, when it's you sharing a TV program online with friends on the other side of the world. It's technology empowering it, but you don't think of that as technology. You think of that as human interaction. That's what we want to do with people. And there's a big transition happening now, which I think the best phrase is to call it the natural user interface, which is ways of interacting with machines on a very human level. So you don't think of it as interacting through technology. You think of it as the software and the hardware knowing who you are as a person and responding to you. And I'm going to give you three examples that I'm quite excited about now that we're covering of why this is happening and it's going to affect us quite considerably in the next five years. The first example, I do travel quite a lot, Peter, not just on digital propaganda tours, um, speaking quite a lot, but also listening and meeting people in a hybrid set of industries because often innovation comes from where a psychologist meets a marketing person, where somebody with a maths background meets a physicist. So last Wednesday, I was in Tel Aviv to see a company called PrimeSense. And there are five guys who met in the Israeli army. You learn a lot of high tech very early in the Israeli army. And also, these guys were quite serious gamers. And they were frustrated that the way you interact with games hasn't really changed very much. You've got the remote control. You've got a certain convention of how you interact and shoot and so on. So they wanted to create a business that gave you a new experience, that got rid of the barriers. And they developed a sensor which had an infrared sensor camera, a light source, and a normal RGB camera. And what that allowed you to do is follow the movement of a person in real time. And you could also know where they were in three dimensions. It's a depth sensor. So they, de they developed this little box. It was about that big about four years ago, and they took it around to the trade fairs. Okay, it was a box. There was no software that yet gave it some effective real-world uses, but you could see the potential. If you could track things as they were moving, what did this offer? Some people from Microsoft got to see this, and Microsoft, who have a huge business through the Xbox, are trying to expand the market from core gamers to the rest of us, to families, and also to take us from gaming to entertainment. So they started working on this big project, which was known as Project Natal, which came up with a product which is being launched in November called Kinect, which involves a modified version of this sensor next to your TV that monitors you as you move in real time, 30 frames a second, and through very clever algorithms, can track your movements and put you inside the screen. So I went along to the launch in LA and played this, and it's extraordinary, because you don't think of yourself playing a game through a remote, you think of yourself in the game. There's, for instance, a bowling game where you just stand there and you do this, and you see a version of yourself on the screen. There's a football game where you just kick. But it's not just games, there's a dance game called Dance Central where the machinery knows where you are and tracks you online as you're doing this. 
you could actually learn to be a better dancer. I didn't play that one. There's a personal fitness game where you have a personal trainer on, on the screen who tells you this is your BMI, this is your height, and it tracks you, okay? So I'm thinking, that's now, where does this go? What does this technology offer in a couple of years? And there's other things happening as well. Voice recognition, the algorithms that know what you're saying is moving very quickly. I've got a Google phone, which is, you know, the, William Gibson, the sci-fi writer, said the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And so one of those threads here, if I have any power, um, now, Google Translate, which is an app for the Android phone, you talk into it, it recognizes what you're saying, and it will translate it. So let me try some Chinese. I like fish and chips. Okay. You translate it into Chinese, see if it works. Chinese Stephen Hawking. So that changes my behavior. That means... <laughs> I could probably do it reverse, yeah. But you can do all sorts of languages now, and it's growing very, very quickly. The database is learning from people. So now my behavior has changed. I'm not going to be scared of going to Beijing now and talking to a taxi driver about where I want to go. So Sergey Brin, um, I did a piece about last summer, and he said within 20 years we're going to crack the Turing test. The Turing test is where you can't tell if you're talking to a human or a machine. So that's the second thread. And the third thread, there's a company we're writing about next month based in San Francisco called Emotive Systems, and they've developed a headset that's now commercially available which tracks patterns in your brain, it tracks thought, it tracks the movement of neurons, really, the synapses. And it also tracks facial muscles. And initially, a lot of the research was for games, how you could control something in a game using a headset, because games is where the money is. This is why Microsoft is investing heavily in games. $48 billion industry. But they're finding other real-world uses. So there's a demo that they have online of somebody controlling a wheelchair with one of these devices on, partly through thinking, partly through blinking and winking. So you have to think, in a couple of years, where's all this going to lead us with this natural user interface? And I'm thinking, if you've got sensors that can understand who you are, facial recognition, they know that's you with or without a change of hairstyle, and you've got voice recognition, and you've got devices that start to read what you're thinking. You've got everything from, in your living room, whoever is there, whichever family member, it will customize the TV channel, the air conditioning, how you like the curtains for you. When you get into your car, it will recognize who you are. It will know by syncing to your calendar where your next meeting is, give you GPS. If you are able to scan somebody in three dimensions very effectively, who needs being fitted for a bespoke Savile Row suit? It will provide one for you that fits you perfectly. So I think our challenge as creative people in the next couple of years is to think, okay, technology, that's a given. How can we use it to make our lives as human beings, as social human beings, more effective? How can we use it in business for what customers want? And what happens when the technology layer disappears.
Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're being very unjudgmental about all this. Um, what a world, as three speakers have conjured up, one where machines pass the Turing test, i.e. you're relating to a machine, but you don't know it's a machine. When Mormons run the world, and maybe they already do, everything else, all the rest of life is a shroud and a cover-up, and where the last resource of ancient Britain, the thing we could depend on for traditional values, namely ITV, is going, <laughs> is going online. Who is thrilled amongst you, ladies and gentlemen, and who is appalled and terrified? Sir, Stefan. Thanks very much, Stefan Stern, and uh, if I can say that. Uh, well, we need more religion. We need more religion. Um, I want to ask about privacy, because social, the social and social media involves giving up uh, something. And I want to ask the panel what they make of Eric Schmidt's comment recently of Google, and he's now arguing that perhaps he was joking, but who knows, that he could imagine a time when a 25 or 30-year-old would actually get in touch with Google and the other technology companies and say, um, I, if, if it's all right with you, I'd quite like a new identity now, please. I'm not sure about all this stuff I put out there about me <laughs> on the way up, and I'm trying to get a job now, and so I'd, I'd now like to be known as Barry Smith, and I'd like you to um, delete my former identity. Second life. Can Google give us a second life? Is that a good idea? Mr. Rowan. Nope. Well, I just wrote a column in GQ, which I put on the Wired Gate website yesterday, um, six reasons why I'm avoiding Facebook. Um, sorry if you try and friend me. It's nothing rude if I don't respond. Um, private companies don't have your interests at heart. People inevitably want to reinvent themselves at some stage in their life, and a 16-year-old will be a 20-year-old looking for a job. And I think my generation cared about this thing called privacy, the next generation doesn't understand privacy. And it's convenient sharing information. You share everything. But you can't erase anything. It's impossible. You can change your name, as Eric Schmidt said, but Experian will link your new name to your old name for credit reference reasons. And I'm teaching my kids not to put personal photos online, to be very careful about what they share openly, because it will come back and be used against you. Then, then how do we manage it? You're the person that, that knows about the technology. Because if you used to live in a village and you were really naughty at 18, then everybody knew about it and, of course, you could move to the next village. And if we're now in this global village, you're all technological that you're talking about that can now read us as we move across a room. Isn't that a terrifying thought, then? I used to think, well, you shouldn't worry, there's going to be so much data out there that nobody's going to find that incriminating evidence about you something you did wrong when you were 15. Um, Isn't the other alternative not to do something wrong at 15? Well, people do. And Yeah, but then people recover from it. Maybe if it's such a flat paying thing. You can't recover now if it's online forever. If you Google someone who's been involved in a court case, that will be at the top, even if they try and reinvent themselves. Um, the danger is, I think now, that information is not just going to sit there in a huge haystack there will be algorithms that will personalise things for you and find out everything for you. 
Maybe also it means that you, we could ha have to post the material. I mean, talking about, my, my husband's got a great story about not escaping your life on Google. He went to America to do, what was it you said, psycho? Psycho bongo. Psycho that's right. To escape his uh, disgrace back here and um, made a whole new set of friends in San Francisco that thought he was brilliant and serious and wondrous and cool. And then his new friend, Caroline, came in the next day and said, oh my God, you're going to have to be so careful about what you do online because there's some guy called Derek Draper in England who's a total twat. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so you can never really escape, which is true, uh, that. But then maybe there comes a point where everybody will have something done something wrong. In the same way as you go to, everybody talks about their days at university now and it's a memory thing and it's people you know, maybe everybody would have done something wrong or you don't think well, so. I, I'm going to ask James because I thought there'd be a whole generation of people who wouldn't stand for public life because there would be something incriminating against all of them. But I wonder if you think we're going to become much more tolerant as voters. Uh, I mean, I, I think my generation and up are just lucky enough that none of this stuff was around when you were 14, which is when it's really damaging. And so I suppose the, the generational cusp is the interesting one. I mean, the thing that occurs to me is that the tools to manage, we're going to have to get into a situation in which you actively manage your own uh, privacy settings, and tools to allow you to do that simply don't exist. So I wonder, rather than taking David's sort of opt-out approach, whether or not the complaint we ought to have is that, um, that no one as yet has invented tools that will allow us to protect our privacy and learn how to do so more actively. And once you have those, then I suppose you do have a choice, which is once you can make some decisions about how much you want out there and not, then there's some you can't manage, you know, the, the, the people linking together databases and trying, you know, that may be unmanageable. But at that point, once you've got better tools to manage your own privacy, then you can, um, then you can make that decision more sensibly. But at the moment, I mean, I agree, I find this when I go to weddings, when I sort of lied to some people that I'm going to go to this wedding or another, and you suddenly realize that you'll end up on someone else's Facebook photographs, <laughs> and you have to be extra careful about who you allow to take your photograph for fear that you'll, you know, any white lies you've told will suddenly be outdone. And I suspect that in, in, in macro, that, that's a problem we're all going to have to learn to deal with. So. Just in terms of... I didn't answer the question about public life, which is, no, I don't think it will have any difference. I mean, lots and lots of things are said to put people off running for office from, you know, excessive scrutiny in the media through to... And there's a whole list of stories you read that, you know, will denude our public life of talented, able people, and I see absolutely no evidence that there's anything other than a vast number of people, many more than can do it, who desperately want to be in political and public life. So I, I'd be surprised if it had much of an effect on that. Just very quickly, if you think that it's going to be easy to control your privacy settings, just have a look at Facebook's privacy policy, which is 5,800 words, longer than the Magna Carta. Well, we self-satisfied people who went to mini Davos in Port Merion actually heard about all this, part of it from Julia's clever, slightly geeky brother, who gave us some terrifying warnings about all this. What I think is interesting as well is the increasingly micro level, for example, your grand ambition, Kate, that you really can maintain personal relationships with 40, 50, 150,000 Twitter followers. And I worry that what that means is we're now also as a public unpicking the micro detail. For instance, at the moment, you can search with relative impunity. But at some point, technology will become so widely available that how you search and what you search 
can itself become public. So forget whether or not you're doing really bad things like searching for porn. Are you stalking your ex-boyfriend by searching endlessly for them? All this level of detail, I mean, even the news of the world stuff, arguably, everybody's known for years about this level of behavior, but now it's being scrutinized. I know, but maybe that's no bad thing, is what I'm saying. You see, it, what people loved about the internet part is they could look for porn and not get caught, whereas if they went into their newsagent, to their shop, they did get caught, and someone told someone else who told their wife. You know, so maybe, in a way, what we're doing is that the kind of secretive world of the internet that we fear allowed people to be weird and get away with it, which, as you say, private companies probably enjoyed exploiting for a long time, maybe that's, that's coming to the surface now, and we're, we're in a different set of accountability. No, we've had a bit oh, of... Sorry, <laughs> Derek. I think he wants to come back on the twat comment. <laughs> no, I, 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 no. Um, no, I did want to agree with my wife, though. Because um, I think that what people are saying is, is, is incredibly sort of pessimistic and gloomy, really. Um, I think it's a little bit like in the days when the telephone was invented and people ran away from it in horror because they thought there was, a, there was a strange person in your parlour. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think David's point about generations is right. And I, I think that the, the difference is uh, we, people from our generation who are not used to it, we, we, we see the uh, person doing something that they might regret then, then becoming indelibly uh, recorded as sort of terrible. But I think teenagers think it, it, we live in a world where the revelation of those kind of things is completely normal for everybody. So, so, so it ceases to have the, 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 the sort of psychological impact it has on, on, on our generation. And I, and I think that it could be incredibly healthy. I think the idea that people running for public office or people who are going to be appointed to jobs or, or whatever it is are going to be people who are flawed and have done things that they might regret. Um, uh, and that everybody is like that, and therefore it's not a problem. We're no longer, you know, looking at it from a psychological point of view, we're no longer deluded into the idea that our politicians are going to be somehow paragons of great paragons of virtue, which they never were. Neither are we going to think that we're employing someone who's never done anything morally dubious, because actually we live in a world where the reality has come to the fore, and the reality is we're flawed human beings who will have done bad things, and it doesn't actually matter. If you have informed consent when you're giving data, that's fine. What's going to be happening is partly through these geolocation services, people will have a permanent track of the bars they hang out in or the nightclubs where there's drug issues. Their health issues will be visible to everybody and their drunken photos. And that's going to affect everything from the cost of their health insurance in the future to whether or not they get allowed into the US and if you've ever had a look at your credit record and seen how many errors there are in there, that it's a nightmare to correct, that's just the start. But again, you see, I think that what will happen is people will begin to say, credit records, they got errors in. Do you see what I mean? That there's something about recognising that there's a new reality, that you're not actually going to be... Because I'm all in favour of having you know, the European Commission do what it can, and, and of course there should be as much control as you can to, for people to allow, you know, to, to give consent. But actually stepping aside from that, none of that's really going to work, is it? I mean, the technology you're describing, you know, and the technology that already exists, means that we will be living in a completely different world where all these things are effectively public. And I just think, actually... It, it may not be as, uh, entirely a bad thing, is what I'm saying. 
what I call the Simon Cowell view, people are imperfect, get over it. But it's worth looking at the cult of the amateur. I, who's read the cult of the amateur? So, well, it's not widely read here, but it's about that world enabled by new technologies where people can be visibly imperfect, just like you and me. And it's quite a blast. It's not very well written. It's written by a Brit living in Silicon Valley, but it's very, very interesting, and it deserves more airplay here. Sally Williams, and I'm from Omnicom. I'm interested in the um, making a connection between the social relevance and religion, because um, I think that... Um, rather than fearing and the barriers of wanting to be involved in what your information you release and thinking about how you control that flow of information, is that it seems that on the aspect of religion, if you're not involved in where the conversation is happening, where is the relevance? And I think there's some quite some big lessons over on terms of religion about how they are engaging and being part of the conversation to stay relevant and for those people who aren't and you start to close down where you're having that conversation you not, might find yourself not part of it so it's a question to the panel I was just interested in their view about religion and maybe starting with Mormonism and have you embraced it more and does that open up a conversation on religion to become more relevant today I mean it's an interesting parallel because you have um we want to have, particularly people in this room, want to have both things, I think, which is a high level of privacy and a high level of visibility at the same time. I mean, all of you tweet and are desperately seeking attention in one sense, and on the other hand, worry that you, you know, now are more visible than ever before, which these two things can't be true at the same time. One of the intriguing things about my sort of small love affair with Mormonism is the trade-off that you make, um, f well, a trade-off that many people in the religion make for social support for strong social networks for institutions that inculcate you with strong values and give you opportunities is you have a lot less privacy I mean this is a tight um, you know it's a big thick society of the sort that I think you know partly David Cameron thinks that he wants but which is slightly incompatible with um, an entirely liberal view of the world where you get to entirely control your own destiny and kind of lock off this part of it or go into that part of it um, so yeah I mean I, I, I have nothing very much to say about how Mormons use Twitter but I think there is an interesting comparison there about the trade-off between how much individual agency you want and how much you want to kind of rely on a group to support you yeah. well, I'm just going to say, American Pentecostalists are about to give us the new book burning. I mean, it is very, very fascinating what American religious groups get into. And the brilliant television filmmaker, Adam Curtis, posited the idea that Al-Qaeda and American fundamentalists were rather similar. Is that extreme? Don't know. Gent over here. I'm Guido Barbato. I'm a consultant. I usually work in iGaming and sport. Um, I wanted to ask James. James spoke about the importance of organised religion and what we can learn from them, and in particular uh, the Mormons. Um, if we consider that the Medici and the Sarchis are both, were both patrons of the arts and the Sarchis were also marketing and PR guys, would you consider the Renaissance... Uh, a marketing campaign and a PR campaign for the Catholic Church? I'll have to, I mean, I, sort of, what, all, all, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I do know that um, some religions are much better than others at marketing themselves. 
When I was in Salt Lake City sort of learning about my Mormons, I went to the church's global public affairs office, which took over an entire floor of a city block building. So sort of, they, they had hundreds of people there. Um, on the other hand, they have lousy PR most of the time. I mean, again, they've never managed to break the idea that this is an institution similar to Pentecostalists or fundamentalist Muslims, which is kind of weird, secretive, cliquey. Um, uh, so I suppose that most religions, I think, could do with better PR um, uh, or, or engage more uh, thoughtfully with the outside world, I suppose, because there's, there's a lot in there that, that's interesting to learn. Um, as, for, as for the Medicis and the Saatchis, I, I don't really know the answer to that, I'm afraid. People say PR, in the case of a religion, surely that's what preaching is. It's cynical to say it's PR, but isn't that what going, you're going out and doing, really? You believe in it, you want to engage people in it, and you want to draw them in. And to answer your question, of course religion should be engaging online. You know, otherwise it would be like Jesus staying in the, you know, in the church and not going out and preaching to the poor on the mountain and all those kind of things. It's all religious leaders have gone forward into new areas to spread the word uh, in all religions, and they've been the leaders that have taken it forth. So, yeah, they absolutely should be. One word, Scientology. That's a religion allegedly designed as a marketing tool to raise um, funding, allegedly. Well, there you are. And of course, um, Freud's nephew, Mr. Bernays, was one of the greatest PRs the world had ever known. Um, gent at the back there and then gent towards the front here. Whether the problems we have with privacy are not so much technological problems, or I think in the spirit of your comments about human interface and usability and so on, we need to develop interfaces that help us understand the privacy implications of you know, what updates we post and so on. But whether it's more a social problem that in society, as we can see from the Andy Coulson bugging affair, we're obsessed with the private lives and the morals and the mores of individuals. Uh, and if we had a society which was more kind of civically purposeful, if you like, and not so concerned with our individual behavior and more with real politics, uh, it would be less of an issue what we'd done in the past. And I think to Derek Draper's point, actually, you know, we'd sort of get over it and realize that people are fallible and doesn't mean that they're fundamentally bad human beings. Uh, and, and just to follow up, do you think that given all the technologies that we have available to us, not just ICT-related technologies, but more broadly, that actually in London and the UK we're taking most advantage of them, or are we just playing with these toys still? Where society is, um, I haven't bought a newspaper for, you know, six months now, probably. I get lots of information. I get information from people on Twitter. The newspaper world still lives with a different set of slightly artificial values. All my friends are very tolerant about people with gay lifestyles. If an MP is seen with a person of the same sex, the newspapers make it a front-page scandal. You can't bridge that gap until, culturally, we're less hypocritical. And I think in terms of people wanting to go into political life, whatever our friends think is tolerable, if there is this level of moral judgment called the media that says, hey, you snorted, you puffed when you were 14, we're going to get into trouble. Um, as for whether people in cities have an advantage, um, temporarily, but I think eventually there will be fast internet access all over the place because that's where the market's going to be. So people are going to want to sell you stuff. They will make sure. 
Sorry, David. But, but isn't it the whole point about the being seen or the snorting and everything, isn't it the fact that they've lied about it that, that's the issue, not that they've done it? Because when, when it's front page news, it's because the person involved may or may not be denying it. It's not the fact that what you know in private, people accept and go, we know it goes on, it's fine. It's the fact that publicly they're denying it. If they weren't denying it public, if it was out there and more accepted, then it wouldn't be the scandal, would it? Vicious circle there. They're denying it because the press are presenting in accusatory ways. You've let down your constituents, haven't you? We should all mellow out a bit. Well, TV evangelists in America are always having these, these marvellous ten-in-a-bed scandals about people who are paragons of family values. It is very, very fascinating to watch. Jen, here. Well, a bit of an old point now, really. Um, about, uh, I don't know if the Mormons are an exception. I think most religious communities would say they've got a strong community. But my question is going to be, is there such a thing as Mormon fundamentalism? And is it any uh, more dangerous than any other kind of fundamentalism? Um, well, there is. The uh, fundamental... It's a bit louder. Fundamentalist Mormons are the ones that you've mostly heard about. There's about 20,000 of them who live in the south of Utah and a few other places, and they're the ones who've got dozens of wives and sort of live a 19th century lifestyle, but not in the sense of being, you know, not in the sense of fundamentalist Islam. In the sense, they're, they're very inward-looking. They won't trade with anyone. They're not particularly interested in anyone outside their borders, so they're not looking to create any, any trouble. The problem that the main church has had is it's never been able to throw off the legacy of the, the small group of people who have the much more extreme views. So, um. William French from the uh, Embassy of Switzerland. It's a question mainly for David, going back to your device on the um, Google Translator on your phone. Um, and you said, you know, this would uh, mean if you went to Beijing you'd have no qualms about um, talking to a taxi driver. Is there not a risk, particularly in this country, in the English-speaking world, that advances in technology, for example, in being able to communicate in other languages, give a further impediment to us simply learning other languages, which in countries like Switzerland or Scandinavia, or no doubt China, is a given? And is there also maybe in a wider sense on the whole use of social media is there a danger in the English-speaking world that we think this is fantastic, we can communicate with people, but it's all in a slightly bastardised form of English, and we're missing out on conversations, maybe particularly in, the, in Asia and in the Arabic-speaking world, and how do we bridge that gap without just relying on technology? I love Switzerland, the great trilingual nation. Unfortunately, we here have the advantage of laziness because the world seems to see English as the default business language. There are hundreds of millions of Chinese currently learning English. In the Middle East, people are learning English. Um, there is less of an incentive for people who want to go into business, into academia, into media, to learn those other languages. I wish they would. I think our education system needs a bit of a repair. Well, a language apparently dies every other minute, a small, evolved, long-standing, like, uh, against the onslaught of globish. Sorry. I think it's an interesting question. Google Translate is now so good that you can read newspaper articles in almost any other language. I mean, you don't quite, you know, some of them are a bit clunky. 
And it's an interesting way in which, exactly the way David was talking about technology opening up new areas, that on the one hand, this means that you do have access to a much wider conversation. You can go and read articles in other languages, and if you're a journalist, then you can kind of copy them. But, um, but that also provides a threat, because what journalists, foreign correspondents used to do was they were the people who could provide that translation service, and now it's been taken away by a piece of technology. So it's... Um, I, I suspect not very many people are going to decide to learn Chinese one way or another. On the, it's too difficult to, to do. But um, the, Google has now removed a source of expertise in my profession anyway. So. Isn't, isn't there the question of context and nuance that you lose, say, if you're reading a Chinese newspaper or even a German newspaper, that you can have the technology to translate it and it's into a film of clunky English? But if you're reading anything more than a, just a straight news story, say if you're reading a, a comment piece, how do you process the cultural references, the literary allusions, the jokes, the wider richness of conversation? Um, it's got to be a step forward, doesn't it? I mean, if you can't read it at all, you're not going to get any of those things in the first place. So it's got to be, because halfway there is better than, than no, no, no there at all. This is the year I learn a language, and then another news he comes around, but I'm still reading the translation. So, yeah, I think you're right, James. Gent here, and that's, the, that's I'm afraid, alas, our last question. George Brock, City University. I hope you'll forgive me if it's not a question. It's two observations, one of which is historical. There's an unspoken premise in this discussion that uh, disclosure always increases. Uh, historically, that's simply not true. Social elites do make decisions that disclosure reverses. In 18th century England, for example, sexual behavior in the elite was discussed in print lots. 18th century newspapers read like 18th century versions of private eye discussions of Ugandan affairs and so on. In the 19th century, that simply disappeared. People decided it wasn't going to happen anymore. So one tendency went into reverse. The second thing is that I think because institutions are being changed by digital communications, trust is becoming an incredibly important currency. Because although you may know lots more people digitally, and you may know about them and they know about you, the one thing that impersonal connection doesn't give you is trust. And that's why, of course, and that links to James's Mormons, the one thing that those Mormons have, whether people outside that church like it or not, is a very high degree of mutual trust. It remains, that remains a critically important currency. And in fact, I think it gets more important the more mass communications individuals have. Actually, and not least that, that, not to bring it back to my new business, particularly as this is the last question, <laughs> but one of the things we looked at when we were looking at setting up a business was, was the fact that the currency of the celebrity, I know I hate that word, but there is trust in someone you see when you're brushing your teeth in the morning, and there's trust in, in listening to what they say about offers and discounts, and that brought it back, and that, I think, is where it steers people through the marketplace of, of many sides. Well... Thank you all very much. Thank you all very much. We've learnt some fantastic things, some disturbing things. One is, of course, that goodypass.com can change your life. If, can change your life if you've got a constituency. daybreak. Uh, daybreak. If you've got a constituency, you can keep in touch with your constituency, and it's rude not to. We've learnt that new technologies are getting spookier and spookier. There is no other word for it. And also, <laughs> that the Mormons 
aren't Donny Osmond. They're all about the people who run the world. You know, what, what C. Wright Mills used to call the power elite is Mormon. <laughs> I'd love to know what is the relationship between tech literacy and religious fundamentalism. Do you know what the, what the correlations are? Anyway, thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.